Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's Word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. you have your Bible this morning, I ask that you would turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12 is the chapter we have been walking through in our journey through John. We're going to begin this morning in John chapter 12, verse 36. And as you get there, I'll ask that you stand in honor of God's word. As we read, I want to remind and encourage you that these words were given by inspiration of God and are the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And so we turn to John chapter 12, verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, He departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let's pray. Father, give us open eyes. Break up the stony ground. Let us see the glory of Christ in this passage today. Use your word to comfort us, to challenge us, to convict us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thinking back in, in my own life, I think the first time that I was exposed to what now, what I would call and we would call b- biblical theology, was in high school. Um, a man um, gave a lot of his life uh, in those years to, to pouring into me and teaching me the scriptures. And we, we got to this point where he, he said, I want to teach you things that, that, are, that are a little bit different maybe. And, and we started to, to study the scripture, and, and it was the first time that I really understood the Bible as one big story. 
the Bible as, as one big narrative. And I was astounded with the evidences throughout Scripture. I was introduced to the truth of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that, that, that there was coming a day that, that God pronounces judgment on the seed of the serpent by way of the victory of the seed of the woman. And I was astounded with this, this truth. And, and he gave me a book, and it was by a man named uh, Grime Goldsworthy, and it was called According to Plan. And I think the phrase, according to plan, is a phrase of great hope. It's a phrase of, of truth that as we read Scripture that we can cling to. The reality is that the Bible is not some fragmented collection of stories in which God sits in heaven practicing some kind of divine version of trial and error, going through plan A and B and C and D. It's a means of hope for the believer that that is not the case, that our God is in the heavens and that he does all that he pleases, that he is neither surprised or reactive, that he has no second thoughts, no changes of being, and no need for calling a cosmic audible. And so this morning, my aim for us, as we look at John chapter 12, my aim is that we see in John chapter 12 this grand plan on display, this grand beautiful story that is not full of changes of mind or changes of plans. It is one plan from beginning to end for eternity. And I want us to look to Christ. And so this morning, if you're taking notes, our sermon in a sentence is this. Through the explanation and fulfillment of the Israelites' rejection of Christ, we see the true glory of Christ in the salvation of all who behold his glory and believe. That was a lot. So we are going to say that again. Through the explanation and fulfillment of the Israelites' rejection of Christ, we see the true glory of Christ in the salvation of all who behold his glory and believe. So this morning, that's where we're going. And if it doesn't make sense to you now, I hope by the end... Uh, we'll come full circle and see it. But before we do that, I want to look at where we've been. So we've been in the book of John. We've, we've looked at the first 12 chapters of this book. And in the book of John so far, we've seen the power of God on display, the power of Christ. He's done signs. He's, he's healed people. He's brought someone back from the dead. And yet, in all of that, we've seen vehement unbelief. From among the Jews. He's done all of these signs and yet he's been rejected. And even as we know where we've been, as we look to where we're going in John chapter 13 to 21, it's, it's a long section of scripture, but it, it goes fast. It's, it's, a, it's a quick series of events. And even in the nine chapters to follow where we sit right now today in John chapter 12, the earthly ministry of Jesus prior to his crucifixion, is quickly coming to an end. After John 12, Jesus' public earthly ministry is over. No more public sermons are preached. No more public healings are recorded. And so in many ways, we're at this transition point in the book of John. We're at this trans transition point in the ministry, the public earthly ministry of Jesus. 
As we've studied for the past few weeks, Jesus has recently, in our, in our texts in John chapter 12, he's recently called people to believe. If you look at verses 35 and 36, it says, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And then in verse 44, which we'll study next week, we get to this final, this final public plea, sermon from Christ. In our text today, John gives us this, this little piece of commentary. He gives us this section that might be small, but the magnitude of it is great. When we open up in verse 36, we see that when Jesus had said these things, all of the things that we've been talking about for, for the last month, that, that the light is among you for a little while longer, that you should walk in the light, this plea, it says that he hid himself, he departed. I think in many ways, John is, is helpful in giving us words that mean more than one thing. Because Jesus, it seems, physically had hidden himself. He had, he had left. He had departed. But in, in a deeper sense, Jesus was hidden to the Jews. They did not see him for who he was. And so this morning, we, we get this beautiful picture from John. This, this beautiful text that's so based in the book of Isaiah. And so what I want to say to begin with is John presents an argument in this text from the book of Isaiah. And so this morning, to be faithful to this text, we want to present an argument from John, but also from Isaiah. It would, it would be unfair, it would be inappropriate, and it would be unhelpful, I think, for us to, to not spend a great deal of time looking at what Isaiah says for John, so we will get there. But my scope for us, my goal for us this morning is that we look closely first at what John says in John chapter 12, 36 through 43. But then I also want us to see how he uses the prophecy of Isaiah and then note the implications of both of these passages for our lives. And so that's where we're going. And as we look to our text this morning, I want us first to see unbelief. If you look in verse 36. John here just notices the, and notes for us the unbelief. It says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Just note the unbelief here. Jesus has done so many signs. That's what he says here. In the Greek here, it means many, but it also implies great he hadn't just done a lot of signs. He had done great signs. He had done great things. He had, he had turned water to wine. He had healed people. He had healed an official son. He healed an invalid of 38 years. He fed 5,000 people with one boy's lunch. He walked on water. He healed a boy who was born blind. He, he rose Lazarus from the dead. And they still didn't believe in him. After the healings, the people were only interested in what he could do for the healings of their own physical bodies. After feeding 5,000 people and proclaiming he was actually the bread of life, the people said he had a demon. 
and they desired to kill him. They were only interested in the food he could give them for a day. After Jesus healed a blind man, the Pharisees denied his power and refused to be taught. And after raising Lazarus from the dead, a plot was hired or a plot was hatched to kill Jesus. The implication here of verse 37 is responsibility. There were plenty of signs, and yet they did not believe. I want to see the responsibility of the people. This is, this is not responsibility on Christ. The signs were great. The signs were abundant. The responsibility falls on the people. Even in the abundance and the magnitude of his signs, we note their own self-serving desires of the people. The hardness of their hearts. That glory and power and magnitude are on display and they say, no, we want other things. Note their arrogance, their evil plans. And this just isn't just in the book of John. We find this throughout Scripture that how often did Israel wander from Yahweh into other gods, into idols? How many prophets did Israel kill? How many times did they break covenant? And so John notes here, there were many signs. He did many things, and yet they still did not believe in him. But then he moves in prophecy. He moves into a prophecy from the book of Isaiah in verse 38. So not only is the unbelief of Israel noted, but here the unbelief of Israel is prophesied from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Verse 38 says, So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I want to take it a step further and read verses 1 to 3 of Isaiah 53. It says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. I want to observe a couple things here from this prophecy that John mentions. The first thing I want to see is that there is a lack of belief. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This rhetorical question resounds with the answer, no one. There's, there's this lack of belief. The Israelites have rejected Christ in his word. They have looked at their Messiah and said, we do not want that. And I think there's a note of application for us in this text, in both John chapter 12 and Isaiah chapter 6, in, in, in Isaiah 53, and it is this. Romans 1 makes it clear that there is no middle ground when it comes to God. That each of us, no one can claim that they are right with God on their own that you either honor him as Lord or you reject him. Romans 1, 18 to 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world 
and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. None of us is born in a neutral position. We cannot pretend that there are morally neutral people walking around on this earth. Each of us from birth screams rebellion. We are not interested in the glory of Christ. We are only interested in the glory of ourselves. We know here that this, this, this lack of belief is not from some morally neutral group of people. And this lack of belief we see as well. We see this stemmed from who Jesus is. In verses 2 and 3, Isaiah goes, to, goes on to say that Jesus had no form, no majesty. He didn't, he didn't come looking impressive. The expectation was king, 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 and the reality was no form, no majesty, no beauty. And the result from verse 3 is that he was despised and rejected, acquainted with grief. And in all of this, we're tempted to ask this question. And it might be in the back of your mind. And it's this. If John 1, 11 says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. As we look at this passage in John chapter 12, after Jesus has, has done all of these signs, all of these wonders, he has done things that no man could do. Has he failed? If Christ came to his own as the God of the universe, omnipotent and holy, did he fail if the Jews did not believe? Isaiah seems to think he didn't. But then we have to, we have to ask, why? How is this, this blatant unbelief, rejection of the Jews, how is this not a failure on the part of Christ? And that's a question that I don't want to answer yet. I want you to, I want you to sit there. I want us to sit there. Has, has Christ failed? How do we know that he has not failed? We have to hold this in tension. So I want us to, to sit there, to hold that as we look to the text. Because we see the unbelief of Israel prophesied, but then we also see the unbelief of Israel explained if we look at verse 39. John says, Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Don't you see the change in word here from, from verse 38 to 39? Did you, did you catch it? Could not. This is an amplification. It's a lot easier to say Israel did not believe. Because when we say did not, we can explain it as, oh, well, they would not, which is true. When we say, well, Israel did not believe, we can say, yes, they would not. They were, they were too satisfied in the lesser things and their sin. 
We know this is true that they would not. From, from Scripture, Romans 3 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We know this to be true from experience, that left to themselves, people choose sin, people choose self-glory. But I want you to see here also this passivity. If you go back to Isaiah 53, 1, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's, that's a passive phrase. We see both of these things. And in this verse, verse 39, did not, or what we would say would not, has become could not. The Greek here is this negative form of to be able or to be powerful to. It's this opposite of being able or powerful to believe. It's not just that they did not believe, but rather that they could not believe. Well, where does John get this? He's not making this up. It comes from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. He's blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Isaiah's claim, and consequently, John's claim, is that God in his sovereignty hardened the hearts, blinded the eyes, and closed the ears of the Israelites. I want you to notice the actor in this verse. Verse 40, he has blinded their eyes. He has. He has hardened their hearts. Look at the acted upon. They're the ones whose eyes have been blinded by someone else. So what are the implications of that? Because that's a weighty statement. Because I think in order to make the truth of both John 12 and Isaiah 10 more palatable, we might be tempted to stick with the idea that Israel would not turn to God, that they did not listen or see. But neither writer stops there. Both here show that they they could not. Therefore, what we have to say is that for some reason, God blinded their eyes. And I don't want to say that flippantly. Like it's simply some theological truth separated from people without real life implications. I don't want to say that arrogantly, like somehow I, in that position, would have done better or differently. And we don't want to say that incredulously, like somehow God is unjust, for we know he's just. So then we have to ask this question, just like we asked before, why would he do this? Is God evil in blinding the eyes of Israel? If nothing else, does this not seem counterintuitive? To our logic, why would he close their eyes? Why would he shut their ears? Why would he be interested in barring them from turning to him? Even more, does this not seem wrong? We must ask why, if God is good, 
And if God is God, and if he is worthy of all glory, why blind the eyes of his people? And again, I want us to hold that question in tension. And yes, there should be tension. We are talking about real, literal people, blinded. This is not theoretical, this is life. How could God do this and remain good? How could God do this and remain faithful? I think John and Isaiah both want us to live in that, un- that discomfort that for a second, that tension. We see that he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their heart. But I want to look to something else John says in verse 42. So we saw the unbelief, but I also want to see the false belief. We're going to come back to verse 41. But first I want to look at verse 42 and 43. It says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It says here that many believed in him, but they did not confess their belief for fear of the Pharisees because they were more interested in glory from man than from God. And so we have to ask this question, and what is the difference here between true belief and false belief? Because true belief seems to be said here that it is to love the glory that comes from God. Belief necessitates confession of Christ as Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In baptism, we proclaim we are in Christ, that the old is gone and the new has come. The, the task of the believer is to be the vehicle of the gospel to the world. There is no belief without confession. Therefore, it would seem that what John is describing sounds a lot like false belief. He says these people were more concerned with receiving trivial glories from their contemporaries than living in the true glory of Christ. Calvin says to love the glory of men means in this passage to desire to enjoy reputation among men. The evangelist, therefore, means that those men were so much devoted to the world that they were more desirous to please men than to please God. So as we think about the implications of this, we have to ask the question, what is the end of that kind of faith? Did all these people perish outside of Christ? Because I would say this disposition is just as rebellious and heinous or more rebellious and heinous as rejecting Christ altogether. It's a rejection to proclaim him as Lord. And just like any other sin I I see in this text, just like any other sin of continued, unrepented of, this disposition would prove that no real faith ever existed in their hearts at all. But at the same time, we know of people who fell into this category 
People like Nicodemus in John 3 who came to Jesus at night. He was afraid of the other Pharisees, and yet we see elsewhere this this idea that he shows true belief. This attitude was motivated by fear, revealing that those who supposedly believed were more interested in their own physical safety and glory than the glory of God. But I think we have to be careful before we gladly latch on to that statement. This is a serious statement John makes, mostly because of the times that we are guilty of falling into this category. We hunger and thirst for the glory that comes from man. We often bow to the acclaim of others. We are far too often motivated by so many lesser things. And yet we see the testimony of Scripture is that continued in that. That shows, that proves that a lack of repentance proves that there was no faith at all. And again, maybe you're asking the question, that, that sounds harsh, right? Why is this so heinous? Why does, why does settling for the glory that comes from others result in, in death and not life? And interestingly enough, the answer to that question is the same as the answer to the questions we've been asking. Why would God blind the eyes of Israel? Has Christ failed? And John shows us the answer. Let's look at verse 41 and see true belief. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. John says that Isaiah, in the midst of this unbelief and blindness, saw his glory and spoke. What does it mean that he saw his glory. Whose glory did he see? Well, John here is arguing, and as am I, that he saw the glory of Christ. We have to ask the question, well, when did he see that glory? If he saw the glory of Christ, when did that happen? And for that, I want us, something I don't do often, but want us to do today, turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Because when we ask the question, when did he see his glory, we have to go back to this time when he did, this moment. Isaiah chapter 6 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, this is verse 1, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What do we see in this passage? Well, we, we, we see first the sovereignty of God. Uzziah was dead, but God, Christ, seated on the throne. We see the sovereignty of God, but we see the holiness of God. They're seraphim and they're above him. And, and what are they shouting to one another? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The angels are shouting it. The building is shaking with the power of the Lord. Isaiah's response is one of brokenness. Not only of his own sin, but of the sin of his people. We see the sovereignty of God, but we also see the holiness of God. But then we see in verse 6, we see the grace of God because one flies to him and says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The glory of this statement is that Isaiah had done nothing to deserve this kind of cleansing. What are the implications here? Isaiah has seen Christ. He felt the weight of his sin. He experienced the grace of Christ. But we have to ask the question, how was Isaiah's guilt taken away? How were his sins atoned for? And again, I want us to hold that question in our minds. Because interestingly, the answer to that question is the same answer to the questions we've already asked. How is Isaiah's guilt taken away? How are his sins atoned for? Why would God blind the eyes of the Israelites? Why does settling for the glory that comes from others result in death and not life? We hold these questions in tension. Because John doesn't stop there. He, he says he saw, and then he says he spoke. We know this is true from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Everyone likes to quote that verse, which gets a little awkward in verse 9. Verse 9 says, and he said, go and say to this people. This will sound familiar. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lay waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed 
is its stump. Isaiah spoke of Christ. What you see here in verse 11, this word. This is a word of hope in this passage. Isaiah says, then I, then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until. There is an end to this blindness. There is an end to this hardness. There will come a day when the eyes will be opened. What is that day? Well, again, I think we hold that question in tension because it has the same answer. And we look in verse 13 and we see he says here that the holy seed is its stump, that there will be a distinct people. Even, as verse 13 shares, a tenth remain, even in the midst of this unbelief, in this blindness, in this deafness, in this hardness of heart, there is a people. The entirety of Israel is not lost. But how? Was not all of Israel guilty? Is not all of mankind guilty before a holy God? And again, all of these questions find their answer in a singular answer. Because what we see from John is that Isaiah saw and he spoke. And today, we're here because we have seen the glory of Christ. And we speak of the glory of Christ. And still we have to ask, how? All of these questions find their answer in one truth, in one man. Has Christ failed? Why would God blind the eyes of the Israelites? Why is it evil to care more for the glory from men than from God? How is Isaiah's guilt taken away? What is the day when the blindness will be taken away? How is there a seed? How is there a remnant of the elect throughout history? And the answer, all of these questions find their answer in Christ. In his death, Christ purchased his people. If we, even, we could go back to Isaiah 53. Verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. In his grace, the Father drew us to himself and made Christ beautiful and sin repulsive. No form, no majesty, no beauty turned into, in our eyes, the greatest form, the most majesty, the highest beauty. Despised and rejected, and yet every knee will bow. Acquainted with grief, yet clothed in glory. But there's still a question, why? And what we see is that in his sovereignty, God ensured Israelite rejection in order that salvation would be offered to all peoples, to people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Peter believed this. Acts 2, 22 to 24, he says, Men of Israel, 
Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see this in the writing and the sermon of Peter. In his sovereignty, God ensured Israelite rejection in order that salvation would be brought to people and offered to people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Paul believed this. Romans 11, 11, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Through this trespass, through this blindness, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And yet, what we know from the truth of Scripture, our biblical theology would tell us that in His grace, God has not given up on Israel. Romans eleven twenty five says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening, what we've been talking about, has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Remember from Isaiah chapter 6, the word until? The cross of Christ ensures that once the fullness of the Gentiles has been brought into the kingdom, the fullness of the elect of ethnic Israel will also be ushered into the kingdom as one people. The cross of Christ ensures this, that in Christ we are one. I want us to look at this plan unfolded. The phrase according to plan seems the best phrase for it. Verse Romans eleven twenty two 22 says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. God did not have a plan B. In his infinite wisdom, he has shown his glory in the salvation of both Jew and Greek, and we have seen it, and we speak of it. This word is screaming, planned. Church, this morning, our opportunity, our joy, our hope is to look to Christ, a Christ who is not a second choice, who is not a plan B. It is in him who we have staked our trust. It is in his grace that we glory. It is in the light of his face that we truly see. It is in his glory that we speak. It's always been Christ. He is the one that we look to.